two years ago in the United Kingdom, a 67-year-old woman went in for what she felt like was going to be a routine cataract surgery. She had been complaining of, of dryness in her eyes and was having a hard time seeing, and she just chalked it up to, I'm getting older, and those things happen when we get older. But when she went into the doctor's room for pre-op, and they began to examine her, they canceled the surgery. And the reason why they canceled the surgery is they found the reason why she couldn't see. And that was because she had 27 contact lenses in one of her eyes. The first stack the doctor found was 17 lenses thick. Later, upon further examination, he found another one that was 10 lenses thick. And she had 27 lenses in one of her eyes. Apparently, she'd been wearing contacts for 35 years. And whenever she pulled out one of her monthly disposable lenses... She would think that it had fallen out of her eye when she was pulling it out and she couldn't find it on the ground. So she assumed it was gone and she put another one in. The problem was, is like magnets, these, these lenses were attracting to one another and stacking up on top of each other. And that was the reason why she couldn't see. Thankfully, miraculously, a couple weeks later, her eye recovered enough to have the cataract surgery. And according to the CNN article I read this week, she sees just fine today. Now, some of you are like, Scott, that is a disgusting story to put the sermon with. <laughs> well, you should, you should be glad because my other option was entitled Seven Living Things Found Inside Human Ear Canals That Will Make You Squirm. <laughs> and this picture is a lot better than those. I'll just tell you, just tell you that. So, so why this beginning? Well, first, I wanted to make sure I had your attention, and I think I do. And secondly, I wanted us all to be on the same page when it comes to understanding the danger of ignoring problems. We might all judge somebody who goes to the doctor with 27 cataracts in their eyes. But all of us probably have something in our life today that we're ignoring. For me last year, it was a toothache. And finally, that toothache got so much that I was taking Advil for it. And so the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I called my friend Chris Inman, who preached for me last week, did a great job. I said, Chris, you know, you know good dentist? I need to get in today. He got me into his dentist. And I had a root canal the day before Thanksgiving. Not the way you want to celebrate Thanksgiving is recovering from a root canal. But as my dentist told me, Scott, this could have been an easy fix with a cavity filling if you hadn't ignored it. All of us have a tendency to ignore and put off something that's uncomfortable to deal with. And if nothing else, this series that we've been in for the last six weeks called Flawed Families has been our effort to shift from ignoring those flaws to facing those flaws. Because nothing gets better when you ignore it. And we've said that if we want our families to be transformed, then we're going to have to face those flaws. The first week we said that every one of our families is flawed, and it's only through those flaws that we experience God's grace. We've, throughout this series, challenged you to, to open up your hand and your heart to God to, to expose those flaws so that he can work through them. We've talked about how we can work through and abandon our agendas. And this week I was in the grocery store, and somebody stopped me, and they told me about how they went on a trip to see a family member that's been a relationship or that's been driven by agendas. They said, this is the first time I've ever abandoned my agenda. So how did it go? They said, well, it's the best visit we've had in three years. And I cried 
but for a good reason this time and not a bad reason. We talked about the patterns that we're in in our families and what it means to break those and start new ones. And then last week, Chris Inman shared with us about how do we balance and right-size our priorities. And I've been praying for Chris all week because his Dodgers did not have a great week. So I'm sorry, Chris. So, But today we're going to wrap up this series not with an idea but with a question. And if you have your hand, I'd encourage you to write this down. This is our big question for today as we land the plane. Jesus wants to heal us. But do we want to be healed? We've been singing all morning about the power of Jesus. And I believe that Jesus wants to heal our flawed families and transform them. And in those places where they've been broken to heal them. But the question isn't, does Jesus want to heal us? The question is, do we want to be healed? And while you might assume that everybody would answer that question, yes, of course I want to be healed. It's not that simple. And we're going to learn that today by starting back near the beginning of our Bibles. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. No, I'm not going to read seven chapters of scripture before you today. We don't have time for that. But the story that I'm going to tell you covers all of these chapters. And I'd encourage you to go home and read it because there's some things that I'm not going to get to, but that are really, really good. If you know what happens, if you've been in a section of the Bible before, 2 Samuel is the ninth or 10th book in the Bible. It follows Joshua's judges and ironically 1 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 11, we see King David, who's one of the most popular characters in the Bible. When people say, who do you love in the Bible? Say, pull Jesus out, but pick somebody else. A lot of people pick David. And in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see David at what is one of his lowest moments. If you have your Bible open, you probably see a heading about David and Bathsheba. David was supposed to go to war with his troops, his army, but he stays home. And over the period that follows, he takes another man's wife. I grew up hearing it called adultery. If it happened today, we would use another word. We would use the word rape. And then he takes that woman's husband, who he took advantage of because of his power, and he has him murdered. And then it takes the king's prophet, a man named Nathan, to come in and confront him. Tell him what he's really done and show him the error of his sin. It's this great, incredible man after God's own heart. At his lowest moment, we think. But if you've ever had a low moment before, you've realized that you can always go lower. And what we see in that moment with King David and Nathan is that Nathan confronts David. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you've taken his wife to be your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And and so Nathan the prophet tells David in 2 Samuel 12, he says that there's going to be consequences, which we've discussed in the series, right? That there's not generational curses, but there are consequences. And he says, there's going to be consequences in your family. And in the very next chapter, we see those consequences. Because in chapter 13, we see that one of David's kids, a man named Amnon, has an undeniable, inescapable affection and lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Now, you've got to understand that, again, in the Bible, the Bible is ruthlessly and relentlessly honest. Uncomfortably so. And it tells us the truth of what people do, not so that we would follow their example at times, but so that we would know. 
And David had many wives, so therefore he had many kids of whom he was the father and there was a different mother. And Amnon and Tamar were from different mothers, but Amnon lusted after Tamar, and he dupes his father into getting Tamar to come to him while he's feigning sickness, and he does the exact same thing his dad does. He rapes her. And we see about this in 2 Samuel 13. It says, but he, Amnon, would not listen to Tamar, and being stronger than she, he violated her, and he lay with her. And when the king, the King David, heard of all these things, what did he do? It says he was very angry, and that's all we see that he did. He just got mad, but he didn't do anything about it. But Absalom, who's Tamar's brother, spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. And after two full years, so Absalom allows this anger and rage to stew in him for two years. He had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons to celebrate that the flocks were being sheared, that the, the coats were being cut off the sheep. But the king said, Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. So he pressed him, and he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. That's what David does. Then Absalom said, well, if, if you're not going to go, well, at least let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So what happens between that verse and the next verse is that Absalom gets his brother Amnon drunk. And he tells his army, when my brother gets hammered, that's your sign. And they killed him. So David raped and murdered. And then his kids separately raped and murdered and uh i'm not saying what absalom did was good but his dad did nothing and so absalom said if my dad's not going to do anything then i'm going to handle this we'll come back to that later so absalom runs away and he's exiled and finally he comes back when joab who's david's general goes to gesher and brings absalom to jerusalem and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He can't stay in my house anymore. He can come home, but we're not going to reconcile. It's like he's in exile, but like at home. He is not to come into my presence. And so Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Again, David has an opportunity to heal, to act, to do something. But what does David do? Nothing. And it says in 2 Samuel 15 that whenever a man would come to pay homage to Absalom, he would put out his hand and take a hold of him and kiss him. This is not normal for a king or a member of the royal family with a commoner. And it says in 2 Samuel 15 verse 6 that Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. If you're following, what's happened over here is that David has done terrible things. And now when his kids do terrible things, he does nothing. One assaults another, does nothing. One murders the assaulter, does nothing. And Absalom's at the gate, taking the hearts of the people away from him. And what does he do? Nothing. And so what happens is that word gets back to the 
king that Absalom has had himself crowned king in secret. And so David has to flee. So I say you have to read this whole chapter because it's a crazy story. I can't read it all to you, but I'm just trying to summarize it for you. So David runs away. Absalom and his army go to battle David and his army. And Absalom, an important piece of information, Absalom is a good-looking dude. He is, he is easy on the eyes, as they would say. And one of the reasons he is easy on the eyes is that he has long hair. So I want you to think about, like, Fabio in the 1980s. <laughs> The scriptures even give us details about how much, I almost called him Fabio, how much Absalom's hair weighs when they cut it. It's there in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. It's like, it's like, it's like pounds. It's how long his hair is. Some of you like, oh, that, that's a headache, you know, but he's got this long flowing hair, which is great for the ladies, but not for what happens next. Because during this battle between Absalom's army and David's army, the battle goes into a forest. And Absalom's riding his horse, and his hair is so long, it gets caught in a tree branch. And so Absalom is just hanging in the forest while his horse runs away. It's there in your Bible. I'm not making this up. It's in your Bible. It's there. And so finally, one of David's army guys comes along and goes, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to go get somebody who's actually got some decision-making ability. So Joab hears about this, and he's so tired of Absalom and all this drama. He's tired of David not dealing with Absalom when he killed Amnon. He's tired of David not dealing with Absalom when he was stealing the hearts of men. He's tired of the fact that thousands and thousands of men are losing their lives. And so finally Joab said, enough. And so Joab finds Absalom hanging from the tree by his hair. And, and Joab sticks three spears through the heart of Absalom. And then calls 10 members of the army and has them literally hack him to pieces. And then word gets back to David that Absalom is dead. Absalom, the one who murdered his other son. Absalom, the one who stole his kingdom. Absalom, the one that forced him to flee. And what does it say that he does? The king covered his face. And the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house. Again, this is the, the spear guy. And he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. Now get ready for this one. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, you'd be pleased. Whoa, that's a zinger. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stand with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Now I think this passage has about 400 lessons we could learn. But I don't have time to tell you 400 lessons. I've got time to tell you four. And they're on your handout if you want to follow along. The first one is this. Passivity is one of our oldest sins. Passivity 
is one of our oldest sins. David's sin with his children is that he is passive. And before we blast David to kingdom come for this, this sin is not unique to David. It's there right in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 3 says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die if you eat the tree fruit from the tree for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God open knowing good and evil so when the woman named Eve saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of the fruit and ate and what did she do she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate Adam's sin in the garden passivity He knew, he heard from the mouth of God, the commandment, you should, you should eat of anything in this garden, except one tree, this tree. And when Eve takes the food and she eats it and she gives it to him, what does he do? Well, the only thing he does is he eats it. He does nothing to tell her about what's wrong. He's passive. In the same way that David, when he saw one child violate another and saw one child kill another and saw one child stealing the kingdom from right under his nose. Passive, passive, passive. And if Adam, who walked with the Lord in the garden in the cool of the day, and David, who authored over half the Psalms, and of whom the scripture says was a man after God's own heart, if they could fall victim to passivity, then we can too. See, David's got passivity about Amnon's rape of Tamar. He's got passivity about Absalom's revenge of Amnon. He's got passivity about Absalom's insurrection. And it's the lesson that we need to learn that no one is immune from passivity. We're all susceptible to it. And there is no shot, no immunization that you can get that makes you immune to passivity. And passivity sneaks up on us. And we're all vulnerable. Men and women, young and old, seasoned followers of Jesus or brand new ones. If they could fall into passivity, we could too. So the first lesson is passivity is one of our oldest sins. Second, passivity is the goal of our spiritual enemy. Our spiritual enemy, Satan, wants to make us passive. He wants us to sit back and be passive because if we are passive, he will dominate us. In 1 Peter 5, we read about our enemy. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, who's easy to devour? The people who are passive. The people who aren't watching. The people who aren't looking. You go, Scott, why are we so passive? Well, I have some thoughts. If, If passivity is a tree and all you see is the passivity above the ground, there's a root system underground. And there are some things that are the roots of passivity. One of them is popularity, which is misspelled right here, just FYI. So popularity. Many of us want to be liked. We care too much about what people think about us. And so when an opportunity comes to say something or do something, we shrink back because popularity is on the line. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? 
that's closely tied to fear. For many of us, we're passive because we're afraid. What might happen? What might I lose? What might come from this? If I do nothing, none of that will happen. Insecurity. If you don't know who you are, then you will substitute what people say about you for who you are. And I don't know about you, but in my opinion, most people aren't looking around going, let me find somebody who can tell me what I don't want to hear. And so passivity reigns. Shame. Shame's the source of tons of our passivity. We feel shame over what we've done. So why would I say something to somebody else about what they've done? Who am I? And we'll cover this in a second, but that is exactly why David falls. Because as a murderer and a rapist, how much confidence do you have speaking to your children when they do the exact same things? And then finally, childhood. For many of us, we are playing out uh, what happened in our childhood and how we're passive or aggressive today. If you grew up in a home where somebody was really aggressive, you don't want that. So you go to the other side and you become passive. If you grew up in a home where there was a lot of passivity, tendency is to overreact and become aggressive. And, and it's almost like there's this thin line that we're called to walk where there's these ditches we can fall into. One of them is passivity and one of them is domineering. And again, this, this message is for everybody, not just parents, but I will say parents, this is what we struggle with. If you're a parent, your tendency is either to be passive or to be domineering. To want your kid to be your best friend or to not care what they think, but to care about being right. And many of us, because we grew up in domineering homes, we now parent in passivity. Because we, remember from a few weeks ago, when I grow up, I'm never going to be like. So then if that person was domineering, now we're passive. If they were passive, now we're domineering. And sometimes even as parents, we go between the two. Like you have a season where you realize you're being a glorified wuss. I mean, I've been there. I've been a wuss. This is the wusses club. It's okay. Wuss is welcome here, you know. But what happens when you feel like you've been a wuss? You go, I got to do something. I got to make this right. I got to change what I've done for the last 10 years and the next 10 minutes. And you domineer. And this is why we struggle. This is why we stumble. And, and let me just speak to passivity for a second. We often don't think of the consequences of passivity in terms of what it means for the child. But when a parent is passive, kids have to start acting like parents. Isn't that what happens in the story of David? Because David is passive with Amnon, Absalom has to step up and be the parent and do something. And you go, well, he did the wrong thing. Well, his dad was doing nothing. So he figures something is better than nothing. 
But in families with multiple kids, often when one parent is passive with another kid, another kid has to step up and become the parent. And I have to tell you, as a parent, I wasn't ready to do this when I had kids. I certainly wasn't ready to do this when I was a kid. And that's why I think we feel so much shame. And shame is the, it's the playground of our enemy. It's the playground of our enemy. Satan, can you just imagine him speaking into David's heart when he learns about what Amnon did? Oh, I gotta do something. Well, what are you gonna say? Oh, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. I have to hold you accountable. Well, what if he says, well, what about Bathsheba, dad? I, I, gotta, I gotta confront Absalom about, about what he did for Amnon. That's so wrong. And what is he gonna say? What about Uriah, Dad? You can't speak, David. You're just as bad as them. And for so many of us, we are passive in the area where we are most broken or have the greatest failure. The place where you would love to forget what happened is the greatest area you're passive because it's the area where you feel the greatest shame. And our enemy uses that voice of shame to keep you passive, doing nothing. That's why in Revelation 12, it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. If you hear a voice in your head today, when it comes to your family, whatever family feels like for you, and that voice is a voice that accuses you, that voice is the voice of your enemy. It is not the voice of God. If you hear a voice that shames and condemns and accuses, that voice is not the voice of God. Romans 8 declares what the voice of God sounds like. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So our spiritual enemy's goal is to keep us passive. And he'll use anything. Shame, your past, your insecurity, accusation to keep you passive so he can dominate and win. Number three, in a spiritual battle... We must exchange passivity for intentionality. In a spiritual battle, which we're all in today, we must exchange passivity for intentionality. Not passivity for domineering, that's an equal and opposite problem, but intentionality. Choosing to be intentional, choosing to do what we know to do next, trusting God to reveal what comes next. Not being reactive. That's why we go from passivity to domineering. We're reacting, but being proactive. One of the things I find so profoundly interesting about Jesus, and this is a little bit of a turn towards next week, is that Jesus was never passive. He was always intentional. In Luke 9, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay? That's Luke 9. If you know your Bibles, you know that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem in Luke 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 or 18 or 19. He knew where he was going, but he wasn't in a rush. 
He knew where he was going, but in that time between nine and when he gets there, he, he teaches, he gives parables, he heals, he provides miracles. He knew where he was going and he was intentional, but he was leaving room for God to work. And if you've been passive, your temptation is going to be not to be intentional, but to be domineering and try to be in control. Intention is just saying, I know where I'm going and I'm headed there no matter how long it takes. I love what Craig Rochelle, he said, all people end up somewhere in life, but few people end up there on purpose. That's what intentional is. You are not going to control your kids into perfect behavior. You are not going to flip an unhealthy relationship to healthy overnight. This sermon series is not going to fix your family, so don't send them all the links. (laughs) You can't control, but you can be intentional. And that's why Jesus holds together such a, a, a delicate balance and tension between things. He's intentional and knows where he's going, but he's got no problem getting interrupted. He loves people, but he tells them the truth. He shows them grace, and then he calls them to live differently. And this is how Tim Keller describes it. He says, love without truth is sentimentality, and truth without love is harshness. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. Jesus finds a way to walk that balance without falling off on either side, and he models that for us, and he calls us to it. Intentional. And then number four, final lesson. For every flawed family, healing is possible. For every flawed family, healing is possible. I don't have time to tell you the whole rest of the story with David and his family, but there is a son who emerges, who God uses to build a temple, who God uses to reign over the kingdom for an extended period. And once again, when David is confronted by Jabbath's sin, he does the same thing he did with Nathan. He's brokenhearted and contrite. He faces it. And as I was preparing for this series, I was drawn to a passage in the New Testament in John chapter five about a man who was incredibly flawed. In John five, it says that in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, there was a pool in Aramaic. It was called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades like porches around it. And in these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been invalid for 38 years. Years, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to the man, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going in, another steps down before me. This passage has been something I've been kind of wrestling and thinking through for the last several years. Because the first time I read this passage, if you want my honest opinion, I thought Jesus was a bit of a jerk. I said, really, Jesus? You have the gall to ask him, do you want to be healed? He's been there for 38 years. It's longer than I've been alive. Like, what else is he doing there? Of course he wants to be healed. 
And now I realize it is maybe the best question Jesus ever asked. Because there's a lot of us that don't want to be healed. You notice what he does when he asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Let's go back to the text. He doesn't say yes or no. He doesn't even answer the question. He just says, sir, I've got no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up and when I try to get up, someone else beats me to it. When he's asked the question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to know what he replies with? Excuses. And excuses pave the way to passivity. For so many of us, we are broken and we are flawed and we are in need of healing. And when Jesus comes and asks us, do you want to be healed? We don't answer yes or no. We explain all the reasons why we can't. For so many of us, when when healing is in front of us, we are scared. Because we know brokenness and unhealthiness so well, and we actually feel safer there. For some of us, the idea of being healed terrifies us. Because we don't know a life without this crutch, struggle, brokenness, and pain. The question is not, does Jesus want to heal you? The question isn't, does Jesus want to heal your family? The answer is a resounding yes. The question is, do you want to be healed? Back in Genesis, Jesus asked the same question to Adam. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What does he say? The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Excuse? Passivity? So, so what's so good is that our hope is not in getting more discipline. Our hope isn't in working harder. In the garden... Adam sinned, he hid behind a tree in shame, and he made excuses to God about why he did what he did. You go to the New Testament, and Jesus goes to a very different garden. He goes out behind a tree, and he falls on his knees. And instead of choosing shame, he chooses God's will. And because of that choice in that garden, Jesus did what Adam couldn't. And Jesus did what was needed for you to be healed. And that's why in the right end of the story, it says that Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and it walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. Now healing may not come for your family that fast. Healing may not be over like that. But when it comes to your relationship with God, if that's where the healing is needed, you can, be made with, you can be made right with God like that. And God can begin today on work that continues. On the back of your hand, there's some next steps that I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is not on there, 
it's actually number zero. I added it over the weekend. So for those of you who are worried about having things all in order, I'm sorry for the anxiety I'm about to give you. (laughs) Number zero is feel the pain. Feel the pain. Some of you need to feel the pain before you make the change. And that's the reason why you haven't changed yet, is you've been avoiding the pain. Doctors Henry Cloud and Townsend said, we change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Consequences give us the pain that motivates us to change. And for some of you, it hasn't gotten bad enough. You're enabling someone else by holding the consequences from them. Somebody's enabling you by holding the consequences from you. And until you face the pain, you won't change. You've got to face and feel the pain. Now, number one, reject passivity. Reject passivity. That's where it all starts. You make a decision. I am no longer going to be passive. I am no longer going to sit by. I am no longer going to cower in fear. I'm no longer going to be defeated by shame. I am not going to walk that path anymore. Reject passivity, number one. Number two, own it. Because what you don't own, you can't change. And as long as you make excuses, you'll stay passive. Own it. This is my fault. I made a wrong decision. I've been making wrong decisions. Accept responsibility. Number three, be courageous. Be courageous. Now that may sound trite or simple, but let me just tell you, as a recovering wuss, you don't have to be courage for you don't, you don't have to be courageous for hours. You have to be courageous for a few seconds. We bought a zoo, came out a few years ago, it's a movie, and in the movie, the father talks to his son about 20 seconds of insane courage. I was in a hospital room last week, and a courageous moment came upon me I wasn't planning for. If I'd known I was going to have that moment all day, I would have wussed out. But it happened in the moment, and guess what? I had to be courageous for about 15 seconds to start a conversation, and then gravity, conversation, it just took over. You don't have to be courageous for an hour. You don't have to be courageous for days. Sometimes you just have to be courageous enough to start a conversation. To say, I don't like this. This isn't healthy. I screwed up. This isn't good. Sometimes it's just a few seconds of courage. Number four, expect God's provision. Expect God's provision. Notice what it doesn't say in the end. It doesn't say expect God's reward. God's blessing or God to make it rain. Because I can't promise you that if you stop being passive, it is all going to go perfectly. I can't promise that if you decide to show up and be honest in a conversation, everybody's going to love you for what you tell them. Not sure if you've heard, but people don't always like to hear what they don't like to hear. But when you choose to reject passivity and accept responsibility and you're courageous, God meets you in that moment. And I know because it's happened in my marriage. I used to be a passive husband. Several years ago, Danny and I were in a really unhealthy pattern. And like often happens in marriages, you just get used to it. And you just resolve yourself to it. This is how we're going to be. And I was passive. 
It wasn't her problem. It wasn't my problem. It was our problem. We were both involved in it. And I can't speak for her. I can just tell you that I was passive. I was afraid of bringing it up, of confronting it. And it wasn't until we sat down with a counselor separately and together and started having some accountability and some space to talk about it that I stopped being a wuss. And, and she's not here today, but she knows I'm talking about this, so don't write me an email about telling her about your wife that she doesn't know. Oh, she knows. We discussed it this morning. I'm not that stupid. Um, <laughs> but I'm here to tell you that passivity is not the path to change. Courage is. And we're not perfect. We're still in counseling today, but I'm not passive anymore. And I finally decided that I wanted to be healed. Jesus all along has wanted to heal. The question is, do you want to be healed? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.